How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. This is an opportunity for you to uh, confess sin to God the Father if necessary, to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to be refreshed by your word, strengthened by your word, encouraged by your word. May God the Holy Spirit use that to challenge us in our spiritual life as we continue to study these important principles for Christian living. Father, we continue to pray for the conference coming up, that things will go well, that there will not be any travel glitches for the speakers who are coming in or for anyone else. We also pray for Jim Myers. He should have arrived in uh, Brazil by now. We pray for him in the next two or three weeks of ministry that he has there. And we also continue to pray for Dr. Meisinger and his health and his recovery from, from this uh, cancer that he has. Father, we pray for us tonight that we might be responsive to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. And actually, this is part two on standards for the Christian life. <clears throat> Very important to understand that the Christian life is not a life of libertinism or licentiousness, which is the accusation that some people bring against those who believe in grace. After Paul, the Apostle Paul, taught about grace in Romans 1 through 5, the very first objection to it that he dealt with comes at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, as we studied, where he said, since we have received so much grace, should we continue in it, that continue in sin, that grace may abound? And of course, the answer is no, not at all. There are standards. We've now become members of God's royal family. And just as in most human families, there are uh, standards, there are guidelines, there are protocols for the way in which you live as a member of your family. So there are guidelines and rules and protocols for members of the royal family of God. They're not rules to get into the family. They are not rules to, for um, <clears throat> gaining God's blessing because Scripture says we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. They are rules that are guidelines so that we continue to walk in the truth, walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ. When we violate these standards, we're basically operating on the sin nature, and we are out of fellowship. Now, many people believe that you can summarize all of the Christian life under the concept of love, and there's a certain amount of truth to that, and that's how Paul starts off, as we saw last time, going back over a bit of a review on verse 9, where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And then he has two other points. These are not necessarily related to each other. As you go through these verses, down through verse um, 16, actually on into um, on down into 20 and 21, you could argue, <clears throat> some have tried, that it's all of these say something about love. They certainly correlate 
to love. Love for one another is a primary mandate for the Christian towards others in the body of Christ. And so Paul begins with this, love is to be without hypocrisy, meaning there should be no ulterior motives. And the only way we can do that as believers is to love on the basis of our relationship with God. The the Greek word that's used here, agape, is one of two Greek words that are primarily used to express different <clears throat> two different kinds of love in the Christian life. Agape is the word that's used to describe the kind of love that God the Father has towards all the inhabitants of planet Earth, believer or unbeliever. It is a love that seeks their absolute best and always performs on the basis of righteousness and justice, totally consistent with God's righteousness and justice. It's a love based on integrity. And one of the things that we see in this is that love is always connected to an ethical standard. It's always related to a a, a positive uh, ethical absolute. It's not an emotion. It's not sentimentality. It's not based on feeling. It's based on a mental attitude that is grounded on the absolute righteousness of God. That gives us a stability because the righteousness of God never changes. It never fluctuates. It's never up one day, down the other. It's never a little more one day, a little diluted the next day. It's, it's a, it's a never changing standard. He is immutable and his immutability or the doctrine of immutability applies to every characteristic in the essence box. So our love here is manifested on that. It's a love that we sometimes describe as being impersonal or unconditional, two adjectives describing love. What I mean by impersonal is not that it is somehow restrained or somehow distant or somehow not engaging with other people, but it is a standard of behavior that is true whether or not we have a personal relationship with the person we love. We are loving. That means that it applies to the uh, checker at the grocery store. It applies to the uh, person who's driving down the freeway, texting on their cell phone and weaving in and out of lanes. It, it, it applies to everybody, whether we n- know them personally or not. We treat them the same way. We treat them according to the standard of, of God's love. There's no ulterior motives. In other words, we're not trying to get something from somebody. We're not being nice to them in order to manipulate them, in order to get something from them. We're doing it because that is the right thing to do, and we should treat them, this, treat everyone the same. We saw the next uh, mandate, abhor what is evil, apostugeo, meaning to abhor, detest. We should have a a revulsion towards that which is evil, and on the other hand, we should cling to that which is good. Uh, uh, we should have be like Velcro to that which is good. We adhere to it. Now, I talked a little bit about evil last time, and I got a couple of questions after uh, class last week. And every now and then you see somebody who's been sitting in the pew, listening for, for years, 
and a light goes off. They've heard this same doctrine for I don't know how many years, and 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 it's true for all of us. We'll look at a passage, happens to me, I'll look at a passage, all of a sudden, I just never saw that from that passage before. In fact, I'm going to reference a passage I probably read a hundred times on uh, this Sunday and never thought of it in a particular context, never thought about a particular application of it, and we'll see that Sunday. But <clears throat> this term evil is a term that refers, describes those who are living in rebellion against God. And those who live in rebellion against God are not always performing what we think of as sins, negative actions, uh, the kinds of things that are described in various passages and scriptures as the works of the flesh. Because as we see in my uh, explanation here, the term paneros is used of demons in terms of evil spirits. But later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, evil spirits camouflage themselves and counterfeit righteousness and go about as if they are ministers of light. So that which is evil can also do that which appears to be good, but it's a relative good. We use the term good in two senses. The Bible does as well. There's uh, one word in the Greek, kalos, and a different word, agathos. Agathos usually describes something that is, has an intrinsic value, that it's intrinsically good, whereas kalos might in most contexts refer to that which is relatively good. We know many people can do things that are relatively good in, in comparison with the behavior of other people. But if they are sinners, if they're, if, excuse me, let me state it in a different way. If they're an unbeliever and operating on the sin nature, then what they are producing is evil. And an unbeliever can only function in terms of his sin nature. He doesn't have any other nature. He he's only has that corrupt nature. So no matter how nice, friendly, wonderful a person is, no matter how many relatively good things they do, and and there are many unbelievers who do many wonderful things. Uh, we often run fall prey to thinking of unbelievers as only operating on wrong things, but the, the Pharisees were very moral, but they were evil. They, could, they were unbelievers. There are many people in cults that emphasize a self-righteousness, uh, righteousness by works, so they're always trying to be as best that they can be, and yet because they're not saved, because they're not regenerate, then whatever they produce just is coming out of their out of their sin nature. So evil is used of the demons, of the devil, the Pharisees. Uh, it's a synonym for disobedience in many passages, and it describes the inner corrupt nature that we usually refer to as the sin nature. And in Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus addressing his disciples says, "If you then being evil, they're regenerate." And he's saying, you are, even though you're evil, you can do relatively good things for your children. He said the same thing to the Pharisees, but they were unbelievers. And that's <clears throat> because of the sin nature. And this is how we sort of chart the sin nature, motivated at the very core by the lust pattern, whatever makes me happy. Self-absorption is the center of the sin nature. But it can either produce uh, sins, sins of the tongue, sins of the uh, mental attitude, sins, or 
uh, overt sins or can produce human good. Now, just because human good is a product of the sin nature doesn't mean it's it's wrong. Thank God, human good is what unbelievers produce when they're following establishment principles, when they're living responsible lives, when they're married, when they're teaching their children good behavior, when they are contributing to all manner of of uh, charitable uh, institutions and causes. Those are wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't have any have any value in terms of the spiritual life or in terms of eternal life. But they are beneficial for society. They're beneficial for the culture. They're beneficial for other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, whenever we're out of fellowship and we're not walking by the Spirit, we're producing human good. And that means that in the middle of um, teaching a Bible class, a pastor can get out of fellowship, and then the rest of that Bible class, he's walking by the flesh. It has no eternal value, but he's still teaching truth from Scripture, and God still uses it. I know I, I like to use examples that shake people up. You can witness to somebody... Out of selfish motives, you're not walking according to the Spirit if you're doing that. Uh, you, we, can, we can read our Bible. We can be out of fellowship and read our Bible. There are many Christians who read their Bible out of fellowship. because They don't know how to get back into fellowship. But it's a work of, this, of the flesh. It's good. They still learn it. If they get in fellowship, God the Holy Spirit can uh, use some of that and transform it if they apply it into divine good when they're walking by the Spirit. So human good is not a bad thing in terms of, of, um, uh, of uh, relatively speaking. It has benefits for, for society, for the family, for people, uh, and that's, that's good. But it's not the kind of good that measures up to God's standard of righteousness, so it has no eternal value. Second thing I pointed out related to um, <clears throat> evil is that the first occurrence of the word goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which indicates that now man would have an experiential awareness of both that which is good in terms of divine good, but also of sin. In the Old Testament, evil is a word that is a few times used generally of sin, but the vast majority of its uses usually speak of idolatry. Now, idolatry isn't simply the worship of gods that are made out of wood, stone, or some other sort of material. There are many sophisticated idols of the mind. We worship money. We are greedy. And the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 that that greed is a form, covetousness is a form of idolatry. So there are many different forms of idolatry, but they are usually identified as evil. Whenever we're operating on the sin nature, we're worshiping the self. We've replaced God as the focal point of our life and replaced him with self. That is a form of idolatry. And then third point was that everything that proceeds from the sin nature whether it's human good or counterfeit righteousness or overt sin, sins of the tongue, comes under the category of evil, and that can produce religion. And then the passage I alluded to, 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15, talks about the fact that Satan himself 
transforms himself into an angel of light. He is the greatest counterfeiter in all of history, and he is trying to counterfeit God. And what makes Satan so devious is that he wants to produce good. When people are producing sin, the works of the flesh in terms of overt sin, that leads to division and factions and violence, and it it tears apart society. It tears the world apart. Uh, One of the greatest testimonies of Satan's inability to do what he wants to do is that he can't control human beings because uh, when they operate on their sin nature, it leads to all forms of violence and criminality and all forms of of, uh, violence. And that is just the opposite of what Satan wants. He wants peace. There's no greater advocate in history for peace than Satan. He just doesn't want peace on the basis of God's plan. He wants peace on the basis of his plan and independence uh, from God. So we're to abhor what is evil, everything produced from the sin nature, and cling to that which is good. There's that word, agathos, that which has intrinsic good. Well, that takes us up to where we ended last time. Now, in the next section, we have Romans 12, 10 through 13. These are mostly bullets related to standards for the Christian life. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. This is expanding on and giving a little more of a refinement to the command to uh, love without hypocrisy. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. So that last phrase further expands on the idea of what it means to be kindly affectionate to one another. Then the next command in verse 11, not lagging in diligence. We are to be diligent. We are to be eager. We are to uh, focus on the object at hand, which is living a spiritual life. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, and finally distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. So let's break this down. Beginning in 1210, we are to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Now, as we'll see in a minute, I'm going to divert us for a second to some uh, uh, passages that we need to go back to just to get our framework together. Kindly affectionate and brotherly love here are words that are different from the word agape. Uh, they're based on the word uh, philos. Philos is the noun and phileo is the verb, and this has to do with a more intimate love Agape is not as intimate a love as philos. Philos is more of a family love, more of an affectionate love. And so this is taking us to another level from what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. This, if you recall, the context of John 13 is that Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. They've already had the Lord's table. I mean, an institution of the Lord's table with the Passover meal. He has kicked Judas out of the room already, which is a cleansing of the room from sin, so that he's left with the 11 disciples, 
And so they are all believers, and he gives them a new command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, in the Old Testament, the command in the Mosaic Law was to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So what's the standard for loving your neighbor? It's how you love yourself. So the assumption of Scripture is everybody loves themselves. This gives the lie to the whole doctrine of poor self-image that's dominated our whole culture because every sinner loves himself. That's the focus of the sin nature. Your sin nature is in love with you. Whenever you feel depressed, it's because you're not living up to the standards of your self-love and you've disappointed yourself. Uh, if you really hated yourself, you'd get up and say, I'm glad I'm a failure. Let's fail some more. So we need to learn that we already love ourselves, and we need to learn others, love others like we love ourselves. That's the standard that, that, that God is saying. Now, you have people like Norman Vincent Peale and uh, Robert Schuller and several other false teachers and heretics that came along utilizing psychobabble back in the 20th century, saying that, see, what, what happens is before you can love others, see, they just turn Scripture upside down. Before you can love others, you first have to learn to love yourself. You need to have a good self-image. In fact, Robert Schuller was so arrogant that he wrote a book called Self-Image, The New Reformation. And he sent a free copy of that book to every pastor in the country. I think I still have mine. And in there he said, in his opening thing, he says, this doctrine of substitutionary atonement and payment for sin, was that was good for those, those backward people at the time of the Reformation. But we're much more advanced now. We, we know that God isn't going to punish an innocent person for other people's sins. In fact, sin really isn't the problem. The problem is we have a low self-image. And Jesus died so you can have a good self-image. That was his message. And that was a message that, that just reverberated throughout American culture back in the 80s and 90s. And you had all kinds of ramifications from that. But that's not what God was saying in the Old Testament. He said, you already love yourself. Quit being so self-centered and learn how to love other people like you love yourself. Well, when Jesus came along, he's going to ratchet the <clears throat> ratchet the standard up just a little bit. He says, I don't want you to love others like you love yourself. I want you to love others like I love you. Totally different standard, a much higher standard, an almost an impossible standard apart from the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, love. The first one, it's no accident. That's the first thing that Paul mentioned. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It starts with love. So Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. This is a brand new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. He repeats himself here several times. He says in verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. In fact, there are many who have argued, I think accurately in some way, the greatest apologetic of the Christian life is the believer who demonstrates the love of God in their life for all people. 
because that can only happen as a result of God the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. That's how we demonstrate the character of Christ in our lives. It's one of the greatest evidences that we can give of the Christian life. We're to love one another. Uh, Again, he repeats it in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And in John 15, 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Now, all through here, we have the verb uh, agapao. This is this, so this applies to, uh, people, whether they're responsive, not responsive, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the sin nature, doing what we want them to do, not doing what we want them to do. This relates to that principle we call impersonal love. But <clears throat> Jesus also mentions that there is an ethical standard for love. It's not just going out and saying, I love you. And there's so many, there's such shallowness to the uh, typical Christian view of love. I've been in churches where you'll turn around and tell the person next to you, you love them, uh, turn to the other person, give them a hug. All this is just so superficial. It just promotes a continuing shallowness in the, in the Christian life. But scripture says that, that there's an ethical standard. Notice what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, now he's not talking about loving one another. He's talking about love as the kind of love we have for God. If you love me, keep my commandments. Love isn't just an emotion. It is expressed through obedience. There's an ethical standard there. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Not the person who makes a show of it, not the person who talks about it, not the person who's picked up the latest Christian jargon talking about loving God. It's the person who quietly goes about ordering their life according to the standards of Scripture. That's the person who is showing that they truly love God. In John fourteen twenty three, we read, Jesus says, answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then we're given an additional promise, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I think this is more than just the indwelling of the Trinity. This is talking about an an increasing personal relationship with the members of the Trinity for the believer who is walking in obedience. And then the flip side in John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear from me is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 14, uh, 15 is built off of the principle from the Old Testament. This idea of relating love to obedience didn't just pop up in John 14. In Exodus 20, verse 6, we read, But showing God shows mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And that... that <clears throat> combination of loving God and keeping his commandments is restated several times in the Mosaic Law in uh, Leviticus and in in Deuteronomy. In John 15, going on to the next chapter in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, he threw in a new word there. Did you notice it? What's that new word? Earlier, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What's the new word here? You will abide in my love. 
Abide is first introduced at the beginning of John 15 when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Abiding is a key word meaning fellowship, meaning enjoying the fellowship that we have with Christ. So that if you, if we abide in, if we keep his commandments, that is stay in fellowship, then we abide in my love. That is a richness of our relationship, our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John fifteen twelve, two verses later, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. So the command to love one another is, I put it this way so you'd realize this isn't divorced from the mandate to keep his commandments or the fellowship. They go together. John fifteen thirteen. he then said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life, uh, lay down one's life for his friends. So that indicates that there is a sacrificial element to it. And by sacrificial element, what we simply mean is that rather than doing what we want to do out of self-absorption, we're doing what's best for somebody else. That's the idea uh, in, in using the term sacrificial. And then in 1 John 4.20, uh, John writes, now 1 John, remember, is a uh, commentary, as it were, by the Ap- Apostle John some 50, 40, probably 50 years after he heard the Upper Room Discourse. So Jesus is teaching the Upper Room Discourse in about 33 A.D., the night before he goes to the cross, and then some 50 to 60 years later, the Apostle John writes the first epistle of John, which is basically a commentary or an expansion on what Jesus taught in the Upper Room. You can't really understand First John unless you've gone through the upper room, first of all, and understood that. So John says here, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, so he's not going to be what Paul refers to as a Philadelphia, yeah, Philadelphian, where he's loving his brother in, here in Romans 12. If you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... How can he love God whom he has not seen? Loving God is related to what? Obedience to God. So if you're being disobedient and hating your brother, then you don't have a relationship with God. You're out of fellowship. By relationship, I mean fellowship, not salvation. So we go back to our verse uh, verse 10. In verse 10, we read, Be kindly affectionate, to one another. Now, as I got into this, it was difficult to deal with this in terms of the Greek because it appears in the English that there's a command. It, every version translates this as a command, but you'll, you'll notice the word that's translated kindly affectionate is philostorgos. Uh, philos is the noun, meaning love, storgos refers to a stork. A stork has a mother, a mother, mother stork has a great motherly affection for their young. And so storgeo is a verb that was used to describe motherly love in Greek. Now, this is the noun based on that, a compound noun, philostorgos, meaning uh, devotedly, devoted to someone, loving them, uh, t- having a, a tender affection, 
particularly a family affection. So that's the first word. But notice this word is an adjective. It's not a verb. It's not an imperative. The next word is one another, which is uh, alone, which is not a not a um, verb. And then you have Philadelphia, which is for brotherly love. Philos, love. Adelphia, Adelphos, for, for brother. So that's brotherly love. Where do you find a verb in that? So last week I was scratching around, digging around, reading footnotes and all these heavy commentaries and, I, and trying to find somebody who give me a clue as to why everybody's translating this as a verb. And I found a reference to a book that I uh, went and grabbed out of my in-print library. There's still a few books you need to have in print because they're not electronic yet. And found in a footnote, there's some great stuff buried in footnotes, in a footnote, an explanation that in, uh, that there was an idiomatic use of the adjective in Greek that had an imperatival value. See, you can express an imperative, as we do in this section, with a participle. But a participle is a verbal adjective. So apparently in the use of language, they slipped over from using a participial ad, in an adjectival sense to just using an adjective as an imperative. And that it, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where we have this kind of an idiom, but it's expressing this as a command that we are to be devoted like a family member, a loving family member. I always have to qualify this because some people come out of really messed up families. This is a really good family. Uh, a family where the family members really care and love each other. And so we are to have that kind of care and concern for other believers, even when they're not worth it. It's really hard to love the unlovely, and there are unlovely people in every congregation. But that does mean that we are... There's not an asterisk here that says you need to love them from afar. That's not in any textual variant I found. I haven't found anything in the margin. It's not qualified here. It, it says be, be kindly affectionate, be devoted in love to one another, except for that one person you don't really like, except for that one person who just fell off the watermelon truck yesterday. Uh, doesn't have that. There's no exception, no qualification. We are to love every other person in the body of Christ the same way because our love isn't based on who they are. It's not based on who we are. It's based on the character of God that doesn't change. And we always remember, we always have to go back, and sometimes you have to do it by the numbers and say, okay, okay, I know I really don't like this person. I just, something about them just really grates on me. But God loves them with a infinite, stable unchanging love, and I'm just going to focus on doing, following God's pattern and just crip along on that. So we're to be <clears throat> devoted to one another in a family, in, a, in terms of family love to one another with brotherly love. So there's a, from Philostargos to Philadelphia, there's this re-emphasis on this family love. And then it's explained further in the last phrase, in honor, giving preference to one another. This is the opposite of selfish. You can't do this when you're operating on the sin nature. Sin nature is saying it's all about me, and this command is saying, no, it's all about the other person, no matter how much you dislike them. 
We're to give preference to one another. The verb here is geomai, which means to go before, to give them uh, <coughs> preference, to uh, elevate them, and to make them the focus of attention and not putting that focus of attention uh, upon us. <clears throat> Paul goes on in verse 11 saying much the same kind of thing. Three different principles here. Again, he uses some different grammatical construction. And the re- I point that out because whenever you go outside the norm in a grammatical construction, it really strikes the reader uh, in, a, in a different way, and it catches their attention. In the ancient world, they used these kinds of things to highlight, to emphasize, to boldface. They didn't have the ability to do those things, so they did it with grammar. The word for not lagging is the Greek word oikneros, <clears throat> meaning that you shouldn't be hesitant. Hesitant. You shouldn't lag behind. You shouldn't be timid. You should be aggressive. You should be outgoing, in other words, in your diligence. You should make it a point to be diligent. And the word for diligent is this word I just put up on the screen, spude. The verb is spudazo. Now, King James Version translated this, that we are to study to show ourselves approved under God. That word translated study really doesn't mean study. It means to be diligent. New American Standard, NIV, other modern translations updated that. But the context in talking to, to Timothy was that he should be diligent in a particular area, which is in his study of the word, so it's appropriately translated study. But the verb is spudazo, the verb form of this noun, meaning to be diligent, to, to have a zealous pursuit of something, to exert yourself 150% in a certain direction. So we are not to be hesitant or timid in our diligence. We're to have a passion about our spiritual life and a passion about the Word of God. We should be excited about it. Not lagging or not hesitant or not timid in our diligence. And then the next phrase says fervent in the spirit. Now this is not, doesn't mean we need to be jumping pews and having an, uh, some sort of, um, charismatic experience. It's talking about, uh, having a, again, it's another word emphasizing a passion for our spiritual life. The word fervent is zeo, a word that is used literally to mean bringing something to a boil, and figuratively it has the idea of being ardent, aggressive, fervent, or passionate about something. And then it's followed by the phrase in numity, a phrase we find Paul used many, many places. Now here in this passage, at least in the New King James Version, the spirit is translated with a lowercase s. And there's a lot of debate in this passage, as in one or two others, that this really isn't the Holy Spirit, but this is uh, the human spirit, that uh, you should be passionate in your human spirit about the Word. But I tend to uh, favor the fact that since Paul uses the phrase innumity in numerous places to describe doing something by means of the Spirit, in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, number of other passages, 
that what it's talking about here is this isn't just getting all worked up and, and being just passionate about something, but it is a passion that comes from walking by the Spirit. It's, again, something produced in us through God the Holy Spirit. We have a passion, a desire to, to, to live the Christian life serving the Lord. And I didn't put the Greek word up here. It's one we've seen a lot. It's diakoneo, simply a broad sense of the term, just walking in obedience to the Lord, serving him, doing what the Lord says to do in terms of the mandates for the Christian life. So notice that the fervent here, though, one last point, is a present active participle. It's not an adjective used like an imperative here. It's a, The participle is used like an imperative, being fervent in the Spirit. And that's what we're going to see in the next verse. You have uh, three um, participles, all present active participles, rejoicing, being patient, and continuing steadfastly. So the first word to rejoice in hope. Hope is a confident expectation of something in the future. Every time you see the word hope, you need to think of something that's in the future. Because of a future reality, we can have a present optimistic mental attitude that no matter how negative the circumstances are around us, no matter how difficult things may appear, because we have an expectation. We know God has a plan for our life. God is taking us through trials and tests and difficulties to bring us to spiritual maturity. We can rejoice now because of that future hope. What verse does this remind us of? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. See, that's not the normal human reaction to difficulty. The normal human reaction to difficulty is anger or fear or anxiety, but it's not joy. And, we're, and for Christians, we're not joyful because we're masochistic and we just want to revel in uh, the negative. We're joyful because we know that God has a plan. That's exactly what James says, be, <clears throat> that we are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of our faith is not necessarily fun or enjoyable, but because we understand that this is how we grow, this is how the Lord has designed us to mature, then we can have a hope and joy now because we understand what the game plan is. So that connects it with the next phrase, patient in Tribulation. Now, the word here for patient is a word that is familiar to those who've gone through the James study, hupomeno, hupomeno, uh, hupomeno, and it's noun hupomene, uh, relate to endurance, to hang in there. It's hupa is the preposition that's affixed as a prefix, and meno as the as the verb which means to abide or to remain. So it means to remain under, to stay in the circumstances. It doesn't mean to, oh, things are getting tough. I'm going to bail out and go somewhere else. That sometimes the greatest growth that occurs in our Christian life is when we're going through really intense suffering, when we're going through intense difficulty, and it just seems like things are hitting us left and right, one thing after another, 
and there's no let up and we're just ready to scream. And yet that's when we're going through an intensified period of spiritual growth if we take advantage of it and walk by the Spirit and we keep on target. So that's what hupomeno uh, refers to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no temptation or testing uh, taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will make a way to escape. Now, that doesn't mean to avoid it. To make a way to escape means to escape the, ad- the destructive consequences of the adversity. So, because the last phrase is so that we may bear it, so that we can handle it. And the fact that we go through, often you hear this little truism that God wouldn't let you go through it unless you could handle it. There's a certain amount of truth to that, but too often I hear people saying that to, uh, to people who haven't a clue and they're probably not even believers. If you're a member of God's royal family, God does have a plan for you, and he is taking you through things. And if he takes you through it, he knows that you have the resources. Why? Because you have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. You have the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God, and you should have been taught at least the rudimentary principles of the faith rest drill, trusting in God, claiming promises to get through those difficult times. That's how we can bear it as believers. And then the last point we're to continue steadfastly in prayer. Pros cartereo means to persevere. It's a synonym for hupomeno, but it means to continuously do something that you're not going to get distracted from. You're not going to get thrown off balance or off target. It's the word that's used in Colossians 4.2 when Paul said to continue earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. That's proskartereo. It is to hang in there to be steadfast in prayer, day in and day out. How many times have you had this experience? I've had this experience. I think every Christian has. You say, okay, I've got to set up a specific time every day where I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible. The next morning, something happens. The next morning, something happens. Whatever, you know, anything to knock you off course. But the point is that we need to set up a regular disciplinary schedule in our lives for prayer and to read the Word of God. That forms a personal foundation for us in our walk with the Word. And Christians need to need to read the Word. Every now and then somebody asks me a question, as I was asked in the Bible study methods class recently, is <clears throat> what is the role of personal Bible study? in the life of the believer with reference to uh, the study of pastor-teacher. Because there are some people who get the idea that they shouldn't read their Bible. I've read little timid Christians who say, oh, if I read my Bible, I'll get confused. Let me tell you, if you don't read your Bible, you will be confused right here on Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and Thursday night because you don't have a frame of reference for anything. Every believer needs to be, read their Bible. Now, you, now you're going to come across verses. You're going to say, boy, that really doesn't sound like what I've been taught. I run across verses like that. And there's all kinds of issues related to hermeneutics and related to language and related to the traditional way in which some verses have been translated. You just, you just put a question mark there and move on. You don't let it cause you to stumble. We all grow at different rates, and we learn and resolve problems at different times. I'll tell you, with all the years I study, and and if I live to be a 100 with a clear mind, I will have a list 
200 yards long of questions about the Bible to take to the Lord. We're going to be discussing some of these things for a long time. It's not Some passages are just difficult to understand, but that's true for everybody. But we need to read our Bible. We need to be knowledgeable. You need to know the stories of the Bible. They need to be familiar because as you read through them, you'll underline passages that you come across that, wow, that's a great promise. I need to remember that. And you ought to index things like you say, oh, that's a great great little verse related to the angelic conflict. So you make a note in the margin or the top margin. Oh, that's a fabulous verse on the omniscience of God. So you write omniscience in the top margin of your Bible. So then the next time you go, oh, I was somewhere in Psalms, I read a great passage on omniscience. You can thumb your way through there, and then you'll find that note. So you write down notes, you underline verses, you're reminded of promises. You say, that's a great promise. I need to memorize that. Let me see. Jesus wept. Maybe I can remember that tomorrow. Or pray without ceasing. That's really the shortest verse in the Bible from First Thessalonians chapter five, because it's only two words in, in uh, one, uh, yeah, two words in the Greek, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible. So, um, in the Greek New Testament, that is. So we need to um, continue in prayer. We need to focus on these basic things: pray, read your Bible every day. If you read five chapters a day, which takes about eight minutes. Some chapters are a little longer. I understand that some chapters are shorter, too. So, you you know, it balances out. If you read about eight minutes a day, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. It doesn't take long. And anybody can do it. And you read, do that three or four times uh, uh, through three or, two, three or four years, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of the flow of Scripture. And you'll be surprised at what you learn. And then all of a sudden things that are said on... Sunday morning, Tuesday night, or Thursday night, you'll, you'll have little light bulbs go off all the time. It's, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's what that's referring to. And things will, it'll start making sense. We need knowledgeable congregations. So you need to pray, and you need to read your Bible every day. Verse 13, Paul says, distributing. This is the New King James translation. <clears throat> that's not a good translation. It's the verb koinoneo which means to have fellowship, to enjoy fellowship, to share or to take part in something. So share with the needs of the saints. So this would relate also to love being without hypocrisy and being kindly affectionate to help one another, to take care of one another, those that are having difficulties. Somebody's having trouble with a job. Somebody's having trouble, and it's not necessarily financial, Somebody has trouble finding a babysitter. Somebody has a trouble, they're a young mother, and they really don't know what to do with the kid, help them out. A lot of ways in which we can share in the needs of the saints. And then given to hospitality. The, the pastor's conference is a great time. I, I don't know if these got, got filled, but there are a couple of pastors that I know that come to the conference uh, that are great individuals. But they work jobs that they barely take care of, provide for their families, and they have small congregations. And when they come to a conference, conferences are not inexpensive. That's one reason we don't charge. Uh, somebody has to pay, and usually there are those who God's provided for who help uh, in, with donations. 
uh, and that supplies the needs for the congregation. But there's some who can't come. It's it's expensive to spend three nights at a hotel room. That's three hundred bucks, and uh, plus their their airfare or whatever. So it's a great opportunity for folks to open up their home and to uh, provide a place for them to live. It's given to hospitality. It's um, the the word for uh, given is the word dioko. Now, dioko has two meanings. Core meaning is to is to pursue something rigorously. But when you do it in a positive sense, that's helping. When you do it in a negative sense, it's persecuting. So the word can go either way, and it's in fact it's translated in verse fourteen. We have the same word for persecute in verse fourteen. So here it's positive. It's not persecuting people when they're, you open your home to be hospitable. You don't persecute your guests. That's not what it's saying. You're pursuing hospitality. You're looking for opportunities to help out those who are in need. And they're strangers. The word for, for hospitality is the word philoxenia. Uh, philos from the noun for love and xenia from like xenophobic somebody who is fearful of a stranger or somebody in a, 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 a different race. Xenophobics are like the French. I'm not making a nasty comment about the French. I just always thought it was interesting that, that in, in, in English we refer to foreigners as aliens. In French, they're strangers, étrangers. They're strangers. I always thought that was said a lot about the French mindset. If you're not French, you're a stranger. Of course, if you're... English, if you're not American or English, you're an alien. So we should be given to hospitality, ready to open up our homes to others. Then verse 14, Paul sums it up. He says, we need to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, this reminds us of what we covered just a couple of weeks ago in our passage on Sunday morning in Matthew 5. See, this thread runs all the way through Scripture. Loving one another is, and loving others who are not believers doesn't necessarily refer to those who are being nice to you. We're to bless those who curse you. Now, the word here for bless is the word eulogio. This is where we get our English word eulogy. It means to say something nice. It's not the word makaros, which is in over in Matthew 5, which means to be happy. It's translated, blessed are those who, uh, who, who uh, are persecuted. Now, that's a different word for blessed. Here it means to say something nice, genuine. Remember, love is without hypocrisy. That means it's, it's, it's not being, it doesn't have a hidden agenda. Uh, here it's saying something good and meaning it to those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Say something positive to them, and do not speak ill of them. So we're to speak well of those who persecute us. Just to remind you of Matthew 5:43 and following, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, same word here, uh, do good to those who who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is a mature son, that you have to learn how to have impersonal love for all mankind, even those who hate you and persecute you, if you're going to reach uh, spiritual maturity, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward is it? How difficult is it to love people who love you, who treat you nice, who take care of you? But to love someone who spitefully uses you and ridicules you, now that's where it's difficult. We'll stop there, verse 14. We'll stop there tonight, and then we'll come back uh, next week with verse 15 and probably be able to finish the rest of this on later the, uh, as we finish up the chapter. Now, next week, we're not meeting. No Thursday night Bible class next week. So it will be two weeks uh, before we meet back on Thursday night to continue our study in Romans. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And it's always challenging when we talk about what it means to love one another, to love those who hate us and who persecute us, because it runs so contrary to our nature. There's no way that we can produce this on our own. We can't counterfeit it. It can only be produced through a walk by the Spirit as God the Holy Spirit works in us to mature us and to produce your love in us. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of the priority of walking by the Spirit, that we may grow and mature, that the image, the character of your Son might be displayed in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.